Hey besties, and welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Rip Jean Mom. It's Peyton. Um, I'm recording this at 11 o'clock. It's my second time recording this, not gonna lie to you. I recorded it once, and I kind of edit as I go, um, because I don't like re-listening to it right away because I'm so hard on myself, which Bailey says is like a good thing, uh, because then I make it as perfect as I can be. But sometimes I feel like I overdo it and I don't, like I've said in the past, I don't want to over edit and me not be authentic because I do stumble on words. Um, I do sometimes stutter and I don't have my thoughts together all the time, but that's how I am 24-7. So I don't want to, you know, change from who I am and for the things that I say. So, um, but I was editing as I go when I like have paused, taken like really long pauses, kind of trying to get my thoughts together. And I accidentally recorded over a part and it's all mumble jumbled and I couldn't fix it. So I'm re-recording. Um, but it is 11.05, which means it's still my 24th birthday. Um, it's definitely different. Normally I don't feel different on my birthday, but today I definitely do. I feel a little bit more adult and I don't know if it's because I am only six years away from being 30 And that doesn't scare me as much as knowing that this time in six years, my daughter's going to be in school. Um, so that part, that part was really hard to kind of process. I think that's what it is. Um, but, uh, this past week, because it's been a while since I've talked to you guys, a little catch up brief one. Um, I got to catch up with an old friend. Me and another friend went out with her for dinner at one of our local restaurants. It was fantastic. They're both super, super sweet. And um, so it was great catching up. And then over the weekend on Saturday night, one of my coworkers, which I hate saying coworkers because they are my coworkers, but they're also really my good, good friends. And we're all a little bit different. But as Brittany, my boss would say, we mesh really, really well. Um, and so I love them all. And we went out and got, um, we went to the music festival that was downtown and, uh, it was like eight o'clock. So all the vendors were pretty much gone, but we, um, luckily got some really, really good food. So that was a lot of fun, which I'm hoping that when I do my Montana episode, Brittany will be on because she loves crime in Montana. Um, and then also today is my girl Rose's birthday. Happy birthday, love. Um, she also works with me. Um, and they're just both so sweet. I love them so much. If I could hug them right now, I would. Um, if you heard that rattle, that was Ebby shaking her collar. Um, but that's pretty much it. I had Sunday off, so Bailey and I hung out. We cleaned, and then I had today off. I didn't do anything. I probably should have cleaned, but I didn't do anything because it's my birthday. Um, and then tomorrow... I work, I have a couple short shifts coming up in this week, which is super nice because, um, it gives me more time to do stuff around the house that I need to do, but also record some more episodes and get those out. Um, and that's pretty much it. I am going to shout out the Instagram. Follow me at, um, the spooky rip jean mom on Insta because you can see pictures, um, in a couple days from this episode of, what Scott looks like, the FBI agents involved, things like that. Um, but then also follow me on my regular Insta to like DM me with questions or like ideas. It's p.kennedy with two Y's at the end. And then um, I am going to do a trigger warning. 
right now, right off the bat, we do talk about suicide. We do talk about um, sexual assault. And obviously, we talk about murder. Um, because, duh. But I just want to forewarn you, if suicide or sexual assault is something that you cannot listen to, it is okay. This is your exit to go ahead and leave. Um, and we will just kind of jump right in if you all are ready, because I know I am. So we are talking about Scott Lee Kimball from Colorado. He was born September 21st, 1966, and he was arrested um, for shooting poor people. Yep. He was born in Boulder, Colorado to Virgil and Barb Kimball. He grew up in Old Town Lafayette, attending Lafayette Elementary and Middle Schools. Classmates would later say that he was pretty quiet and he was not that popular. When he was 10, his mom came out as being lesbian, which, like I said earlier, we love when people are their true, authentic selves. We praise that here. Um, We accept everybody here on this podcast. Um, um, That growl was definitely Ebby, and I'm going to leave it in because it was kind of cute after I reread it or I rewatched or re-listened. Oh my gosh, I told you guys, I mom brain to the full max. Um, But her little girl was cute, so I'm just going to keep it in. So um, his dad, though, and his mom ended up getting divorced, but his dad moved to Montana and ended up remarrying. In 1976, he got a hold of one of Virgil's guns and started shooting at his house and other people's homes. Scott and his older brother, Brett, would go to their grandma's house a lot. It was definitely their safe place. Um, And then it wasn't, thanks to one of her neighbors, Theodore Payton, who took advantage of the boys while they were staying there and sexually abused both of them in his cabin that he owned. The abuse progressed from having Scott touch him and taking pictures of Scott naked to then tying him up and filming it all. The whole time this was happening, Theodore was threatening Scott, saying he would kill his dad, Virgil, if Scott ever told anyone. Scott went to Santeris High School in 1981, but dropped out after a month and moved to Montana, where his dad and Brett lived. The abuse continued um, even after Scott moved to his dad's I don't know why I stuttered so bad on that one um but the abuse from Theodore didn't stop until Scott turned 23 um and that was because Scott did shoot himself in the head the bullet glanced off his skull but the wound was severe enough that he was in in critical condition for a bit um his family member said that once Scott was finally starting to heal he had seemed to change And it was almost like he didn't have a conscience anymore. After the shooting, Scott and other men that Theodore had sexually abused and ended up reporting him, Theodore was convicted of seven counts of sexually assaulting a child and was sent to jail. Scott did write a letter to the judge begging him to sentence Theodore. In the letter, he said, He has denied me of my right to a normal, healthy, innocent childhood. He has damaged my life forever. Scott, in the beginning, loved to commit fraud. In Colorado, he burglarized houses. When he was 22, he was convicted of using bad checks, which was his first felony and happened in Montana. Montana also charged him with running an illegal hunting outfitting business. Scott did get married once, but it was very, very brief. And then after that, he married Larissa Hintz and they moved to Spokane, Washington. They had two sons, but did divorce in 1997. 
Larissa said that process servers were pretty much always at their house because of the scam Scott was running. There was a scam going in the lodging industry and his partners were cheated out of using legal means to recover their money. Larissa said he always had an excuse that it was never his fault. Scott even roped Larissa's dentist and bishops at her church into the schemes. Which, that's just such a weird, like, not a weird group, but it's just such a random group to kind of mix in, you know? Even though they got divorced, their relationship continued um, a few years after, but finally ended when Larissa accused him of rape. That was Evie yawning. Larissa had said she was trying to make sure she got full custody of the boys, but after she failed a lie detector test, charges weren't filed. Prosecutors also thought the case was complicated because they did continue to have consensual sex after the sexual assault incident, which, like, <coughs> that was Ebby again. She's been under the bed, like, the entire two hours I've been trying to record this episode, wanting nothing to do with me. I finally am on the, like, last final recording of it. She's like, let me just yawn and bark. So, don't mind her. She's a bit of a fool again. Anyway, um, Larissa failed a lie detector test and charges weren't filed. That's where I just left, last left off. So, not to play devil's advocate, but because they continue to have consensual sex after the sexual assault, I can see for a jury, they probably would see that as no gray area, meaning like they'd be like, okay, well, they want to think that maybe she was only having consensual sex with him so he didn't hurt their children. Uh, they would see it black and white as, well, why would you continue to have consensual sex with the man that sexually assaulted you? Um, but I still feel like they should have gone through with filing charges because that probably would have come to light if there were threats and they didn't let that happen. In 2000, Scott was sent to prison in Montana for violating probation for a fraud conviction. In 2001, he ran away from the halfway house that he was living at and he stole a truck and the register money from the gas station he worked at for work release. Larissa said after that, Scott came back to Spokane where he broke into her new home, kidnapped her, and raped her again. This time, she charged, uh, she charged him and a warrant was issued for his arrest. In my notes, I put she charged files. She filed charges is what I meant. I don't, I don't know how late it was when I was typing my notes. To avoid arrest, Scott went to Alaska and he posed as his brother. He even got engaged to someone else and continued to commit check fraud. He forged at least $25,000 in checks, was arrested and convicted for it. He was never brought to trial for assaulting Lewis in Spokane because he convinced FBI agents that he would work with them as an informant. The FBI, FBI does deny, though, that Scott working for them is not why he was not brought to trial for the assault against Larissa, and the agent who handled Scott said he didn't even know about these charges, which I feel like is bullshit, but whatever. Scott told FBI agents that a fellow inmate named Arnold Flowers was planning to have the judge and prosecutor on his case killed. He even wanted a witness on his trial to be killed. With this, the FBI was able to have an undercover agent um, record Arnold and his girlfriend making arrangements with someone else who the FBI believed was the killer. They were arrested in March of 2002. 
Scott told the FBI he could help them with more cases. He told them about how a fellow inmate had bragged about killing a federal prosecutor in Seattle. This would be known as the Wales case. For Scott's safety, he was transferred to the low-security Inglewood Federal Prison in Littleton, Colorado. He discreetly told the FBI that he had information on planned-out crimes, and this had uh, Carl Schlaff, the FBI liaison, visit Scott. Scott told Carl that Steve Enos, convict and friend, was trying to kill witnesses to his ecstasy distribution. Now, I am going to put a side note in here right now. Scott Enos comes up later, but there's also a Steve Hawley. So, I will be referring to them by their last names in order to help with the confusion. There are a lot of names on this, which is why I thought about making it was a two-parter and then when I got to the 50-minute mark after the murders I was like yeah we're definitely gonna make it a two-parter for sure uh anyway so Enos had an ecstasy distribution ring and Scott said he had info on it Carl hated that he was sent to work at Inglewood after working in organized crime and he believed Inglewood was something for an agent who didn't have much experience but that all changed with Scott because he felt like they'd break a case that would put him back on the career path that he wanted and was meant to be on. Carl viewed Scott as a confident man with an answer for everything. He didn't think Scott was very violent and he believed Scott could earn the trust of jury as a witness. Now, Carl is a man who I am not a fan of at all. I 110% believe that he either knew Scott was doing something or knew exactly what Scott was doing and didn't do anything about it. Um, Carl is a very important person in this case and you'll want to remember his name. He's also brought up a lot so it's not hard but he's just the FBI agent that was like Scott's handler basically. So in March of 2003 which was after his second murder he pled guilty to the Colorado and Alaska federal charges. The prosecution and events had the records be sealed so Scott, so Scott could continue being the informant. The FBI flew Scott to Seattle so he could have a monitored conversation with the man that killed Wales. The conversation held no useful information on the case because Scott honestly didn't say what the FBI wanted him to say. And, seemed, and it seemed like the man didn't even really know Scott. Uh, Scott then failed a lie detector test when the FBI asked Scott if the man confessed to the Wales killing. Federal prosecutors told Carl that they were putting the Steve Enos case on hold, which is the ecstasy ring. One of Seattle's agents sent Carl an email about Scott's poor performance and then cast doubt on Scott's credibility. Carl then angrily told the agent he should have called and not emailed because the email could be turned over to a criminal defense lawyer as part of a discovery and because it was written by another FBI agent, it could undermine Scott as a witness if it was introduced at trial. At the next meeting with Scott, Carl didn't even bring up the email or the lie detector. When Carl took Scott to the airport the next month for a flight to Alaska to talk with prosecutors on Arnold Flowers' case, he noticed Scott kind of seemed more agitated than normal. Normally, he's pretty relaxed. Uh, and it was like he knew that Carl was hiding something. 
When Carl got back to the office, he checked the online file and saw a new warrant from Spokane with no specific charge to it. Carl decided to end Scott's service as an informant because he was angry at Scott and the prosecutors in the ENS case, but also he was angry at the Seattle agents who doubted Scott's reliability. Carl ended up having Denver police arrest Scott when his girlfriend was picking him up from the airport after coming back from Alaska. The Spokane charge turned out to be a minor violation of his probation with reporting his address. Right after Carl told him that he was no longer an informant, Scott told Carl that he had information on the disappearance of Jennifer Markham, which he later elaborated was proof that Steve Ennis had a partner who killed her and told him about it in detail. The DEA investigator wasn't sure if Scott was telling the truth, so they performed a li- another lie detector test, and this time he passed. Since he passed, the FBI still felt like he was still of use to the case. So at Scott's sentencing, they asked the judge to give the lightest sentence possible. Scott was fined with $5,000 and ordered to pay $8,300 in restitution to Wells Fargo in Alaska. Judge Marcia Krieger sentenced him to three months in prison, which has done, which was done as served, as time served prior to his release. Gosh, see, I told you guys. Uh, he was put on probation for three years, ending his formal service with the FBI as an informant formally, but he could work with them voluntarily. Judge Krieger, largely bound by the terms of his plea agreement and the federal sentencing guidelines, uh, nonetheless expressed reservations to it. She compared the Scots' finances, especially with payments from the FBI for his service, and if he was happy to inform them on others. He told her, I'm happy to turn other people in, but I don't want to be held fully accountable for my own behavior. Since there was no rule allowing her to refuse the downward departure from the guidelines in a case where the defendant had cooperated with the government, she granted it, reducing the sentence to time served. All right, so now we are going to get into murders. Uh, So bear with me because they are a little bit more on the gruesome side and kind of hard to get through. So let's jump into it, I guess. Following Scott's release in 2002, he moved in with Barb, which is his mom, and her partner. He began making money by flipping houses, and he also set up an organic beef distribution company. His mom and brother gave him $65,000 for the company. This did have him traveling a lot around the state to different ranches and cattle auctions so he could buy product. Larissa had also returned to Colorado, which was his ex-wife, because she still feared him and didn't want him around their sons. The FBI also paid him the first installment in a total of $50,000 and gave him a cell phone with an earpiece for recording. Over the next two years, Scott would kill four people, or at least four that he confessed to. Three out of the four um, were uh oh gosh happened while he was an fbi informant and two out of the four victims happened to be girlfriends of inglewood inmates who he had become friends with um and his only male victim happened to be his uncle he did also try to kill his son which we are going to touch we are going to talk about but charges weren't filed because of legal complications sadly the bodies of the second victim jennifer have not been found 
So his first victim was Leanne Emery. Leanne was an Idaho native who ended up growing up in Colorado when her parents moved there. When she was a teenager, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She worked as a stripper and was briefly married to a man who was incarcerated at the time. This led to her being involved with people who obviously were involved with drugs and other crimes. Leanne was dating Steve Hawley, who was a fellow inmate at Inglewood. Scott reached out to Leanne towards the end of 2002, around the same time he was starting to meet up with Jennifer, and began involving her in scams that of course involved stealing credit card-related checks from mail being thrown away. That is why you always rip it up. Always rip up that mail. Since Leanne wasn't able to confide in Holly after being out in solitary, she grew attached to Scott. She even admitted in an email to her cousin that it was dangerous, but if you don't fuck with him, he's your friend. Um, I am going to give a little side note. I can't remember if I said it in the beginning or not. There's a couple different Steves in here. Leanne has a boyfriend named Steve Holly, and then Jennifer, the victim right after her, her boyfriend, his name is Steve um, Enos, the one with the ecstasy crime ring. So I'm going to call them by their last names just so it doesn't get so confusing. A week after the email on January 16th, 2003, Leanne went to her parents' home in Centennial and packed her car for a caving trip in Mexico. Going on these little caving trips was her kind of hobby she liked to do. Her parents thought it was a turning point in her life, but Leanne showed her parents um, a photo of her as a kid where she looked extremely uncomfortable and she explained to her parents that that's how she feels all the time. Leanne called her sister after and told her if anything happened to her that Leanne loved her. It wasn't a trip to Mexico though. Scott and Leanne spent that time going through four different states. On that trip, Scott stole $15,000 in checks. They used Leanne's credit card to charge the gas and she even bought a laptop. On January 27th, Leanne called her parents and told them she was staying in Mexico a little bit longer, which of course was a lie because she was already back in Colorado. This was the last time her family would hear from her. Leanne had been in Denver since she bought and mailed a gift certificate to her sister, and on that same night, she checked into the Grand Junction Hotel. The clerk recognized her from her photo that the police showed him. Um, he did say that her hair that used to be long and blonde was cut short and dyed dark. She called her cousin from the Grand Junction, and they talked for two hours. She had nicknamed Scott Hannibal and said that if he learned of their conversation, he would kill her. But other than that, she was pretty safe. She wouldn't tell her cousin where she was at, but did tell her cousins she was with corrupt police officers, which is who I think Carl is. Leanne then ended the call, but told her cousin to remember that she loved her, similar to what Leanne had told her sister. On January 29th, Leanne checked out of the hotel. Now, what I'm about to describe is when Scott did confess to this murder, it, this is what he told police happened. Um, he said that they went for a drive um, to Bryson Cannon in Utah's Book Cliffs. When they got near the end of the road, he asked Leanne if she wanted to go on a hike, and she said yes. They went into like a dead end box cannon and then up a cliff leanne then told scott that his face had changed he told leanne to take off her clothes and kneel on the rocks he then shot her in the head with a handgun that leanne had bought him a few days prior during their crime spree the next day her car was found abandoned in a nearby town which was 40 miles from the grand junction hotel leanne's parents didn't even know what she was missing until steve her boyfriend wrote to them two weeks later saying he was worried about how he didn't 
hear from her. Her parents wrote back saying that they had heard they hadn't heard from her either and they began investigating. Steve Hawley told Leanne's dad about the FBI agent who had been in contact with Leanne, but when her dad called that man, he said Steve was lying. Police didn't want to investigate because Leanne had a, was an adult who makes her own choices, but then also because of her background. Which the FBI agent, the only one she had was in contact with, which was Carl. So Carl is not on my good list right now. Her parents tracked um, her movements through her credit card purchases and realized she was never in Mexico. The cousin that Leah kept in contact with then handed over all of their emails. These are the ones that Leanne kept repeating that she was fearful of Scott. Steve Holly wouldn't give up Scott because he was threatening her all of Leanne's family. Scott then used Leanne's card to get gas in California after she went missing. This gave Steve and her parents hope, but when Steve saw the receipts, he could tell by her signature that it wasn't her, and at this point, the police still didn't care. So the second girl to end up getting killed, her body has still not been found. Scott told Carl during an early meeting uh, that Steve Ennis, so a completely different Steve from the last one, would personally kill any uh, witnesses against Steve after his release. The next step was for Steve's girlfriend, Jennifer Markham, to introduce Scott to Steve Enos's partner once he was out of prison. That partner would then give Scott a gun to kill the witnesses. Jennifer was a 25-year-old girl who had dropped out of high school and was originally from Illinois. When she moved to Denver um, with her son, she didn't really have career options because of her not having her high school diploma. So she started dancing at a strip club and she also lived with her son's dad in Colorado Springs. Within two weeks from Scott's release from Inglewood, Scott made contact with Jennifer. He told her that he owned some coffee shops in Seattle and if he wanted to, she could manage one. Carl would not let Scott have a sexual relationship with Jennifer because Carl believed that it would cause complications, especially if Scott or Jennifer needed to testify against Steve Ensign in court um, or if anyone else was involved that they had to testify against. When Jennifer told Steve about Scott's offer, Steve Enos told her that she should take, it up, should take him up on it. This would be the last time Steve and Carl would hear from Jennifer. At the dinner, which was recorded by the FBI, Jennifer did call one of the witnesses that was against Steve a scumbag that deserved to die, but the conversation never went further. Scott told Carl that father, that further into dinner, she had called him and said she was flying to New York where Steve had also been involved with drug dealing and she had worked as a stripper. He claimed she spent $600 on a revolver and killed Steve's partner out there. After the dinner, Jennifer decided to move to Seattle. To prep for this move, she packed up all of her belongings and moved them out into Scott's house. Carl later found out that Jennifer and Scott's cell phones had shown no activity. Carl found it weird because their phones usually were very active throughout the day, and Scott hadn't used his phone for three days. Jennifer would never use her phone again. The Denver International Airport had video proof that Jennifer's car was left there on February 18th, and by the end of March, it was considered abandoned and towed for the unpaid fees. They sent two, two letters to Jennifer's address asking for payments, um, but her son's father said that they had not seen or heard from her since she moved out. Two months later, Carl was driving Scott to meet up with Jason Price, who was confirmed to be Steve's drug partner. 
Carl said, asked Scott if he had heard anything about Jennifer, and Scott said he had heard she was dead. Carl was surprised because he understood that being associated with drug dealers had high risk, but he didn't think she'd be killed by one of them. Scott couldn't provide Carl with any more information. Carl did remember, though, that the weekend Jennifer went missing, he couldn't get a hold of Scott. All of her furniture was still at his house, but Scott had a lease agreement saying that he could use her furniture for a year in exchange for $400. Later that month, right after Scott's arrest at the airport when he got back from Alaska, Carl went to Scott's jail cell to tell him that he was no longer an FBI informant. Scott told Carl that Jason Price had told him that he killed Jennifer and had shown him a picture of her body bound and gagged. He put her in his trunk and drove and dumped her into a creek. Scott then said that Jason asked him to go to the body and remove her breast implants because he knew those would be able to identify her. When you get breast implants, they come with um, like numbers, identify numbers with them, and it matches up with the doctor and the patient. So by looking at those serial numbers, they could kind of figure out who it would be. Um, and obviously they didn't want her identity to be known. Carl and Susan Holen, um, who was a federal drug enforcement administration agent working with the Steve Anus case, questioned Scott. Suzanne wasn't believing that Jason killed her because she didn't feel like he was capable. She actually told another FBI colleague that she believed Scott killed Jennifer but wasn't 100% sure what the motive was and he passed a lie detector test on the question. Jennifer's parents, who had divorced before or after her birth, became concerned when neither one of them had heard from her. They worried but also believed that because of her history she probably just stopped talking to them at talking to them at that point. Um her her case wasn't a huge priority for the police, but in 2004 Jennifer's parents found out that her car had been abandoned and found the year before and this started to raise their suspicions. Scott continued to claim that he had uh, last seen her at the airport, but the airport had no record of her on any plane or having a ticket. Her parents paid to have a billboard with her picture and a tip hotline number on it. The billboard was right above the strip club that she worked at, and there was also a $20,000 reward. In 2004, Jennifer's dad, Bob, had a friend who worked at another local police department look into the federal database for any information on Jennifer. The search alerted Carl, and he called Bob saying that she had not been seen since renting out her furniture to a man. He never told Bob who Scott was and never gave any more details. Finally, Carl gave Bob Scott's phone number and told him to ask for Joe Snitch. Bob and Jennifer's mom went to Colorado to meet Scott. After, the, after they met up and had lunch with him, Scott's demeanor became super unsettling. Scott told Bob the same story he had told Carl about how Steve had killed her, showed him pictures, and then asked Scott to remove her breast implants. Scott, though, added this time that he was also asked to remove her IUD. He also told Bob it's where her body was. He also told Bob that he would show her show him where the body was the next day if he wanted. That night, Scott showed up at Jennifer's mom's hotel in Lakewood and told her that if she signed a contract allowing him to tie her up and have sex with her, he would show her what the killer did to her daughter. She declined because she was afraid that Scott would kill her too. And this is when she and Bob knew that Scott killed Jennifer and there was no doubt about it. So now we're moving into Casey. She is the third victim of Scott. In January of 2003, Lori McLeod had met Scott at a poker table in the Lodge Casino in Blackhawk, which is north of Denver. 
Lori was really impressed because Scott was out with his mom who had been suffering from multiple sclerosis and she found him very likable. When she got to know him, she gave him her phone number. Scott told her that he was an FBI agent showing a fake badge and a laptop with an FBI seal on it. On February 14, 2003, they started dating. This was right before Jennifer went missing. Lori went along with Scott when he told her that he had to travel for his work with the FBI and he couldn't tell her where he was going. All he would tell her was that it was a possible murder for a girl named Jennifer. Which, like, as an outsider looking in, you can obviously see that she's missing, but at this time, she has not been found. And he's saying that it's a murder for her. So if you are now looking at it, you can see how he used his past victims to lie his way to his new victims. Uh, Lori was really only concerned, though, for her daughter, Casey, who was 19. She had her from one of her one of her two man marriages. Casey was a bit problematic. Her mom said she had run away from home a lot, had been charged with credit card fraud, and was recovering from her addiction with meth. When Lori met Scott, Casey seemed to be turning her life around. She was clean, living with Lori, making new friends, and had a part-time job at the local subway. Scott explained to Lori that when he got arrested in June, it was because they were trying a, like out a ruse to burnish his FBI cover. Um, Lori ended up leaving him because he wasn't in jail for long. In August, he told Lori he was going on a camping trip. Now, while Scott was away on his camping trip, Casey disappeared. She had missed a shift at Subway, and after that, Lori was unable to reach her on her cell phone. When Lori tried to get the police involved, they said as long as she doesn't commit any crimes, and because she's an adult, she can disappear as long as she wants. Scott came home a few days later. He kept telling her that Casey would come home eventually. He also told Lori that he would help to see if any of his FBI connections could help. Now, why would you do that? You have to be some sort of sick psychopath to come back and tell a mom that there's hope when there's no hope. Scott would find one of Casey's gold necklaces somewhere in her house or a makeup kit had disappeared. Scott would suggest that that would mean she had been in the house recently. The owner of the property that rented to Scott and Lori had said they saw Casey and her boyfriend driving by. Lori continued to look for Casey herself. She found her boyfriend and he told Lori the last time he saw Casey, Scott was picking her up for work from a, from a motel that they were staying at. Scott had also paid for that hotel room the night she missed her shift. Lori began to wonder if Scott actually knew where Casey was and wondered if he was in touch with her. Scott brought up the idea to Lori that they get married. He said it would help her get over the fact that Casey's disappeared and he also said it may help them find her. After they exchanged vows, which was at a drive through wedding chapel in Vegas, they went back to Denver and Scott's mom, Barb, helped them take out life insurance policies. Lori named Scott as the sole beneficiary in September of 2003, they went on their honeymoon, which was a camping trip in the Kremling area. This wasn't far from where Casey's remains would be found many years later. So in between murdering Casey and murdering his uncle, he tried to kill his son. Um, so their first year of marriage was a bit strained. Scott was gone more than he had been home. And when he was home, he was emotionally abusive. He usually focused his abuse um, to his older son, Justin, who had a very, very gentle soul. Scott considered him feminine and often called Justin Susie to show his disapproval. One evening in July 2004, Scott and his sons, Justin and Cody, were in the backyard digging holes. 
Cody ran in to tell Lori um, to call 911 because Justin possibly had a broken leg. Scott carried Justin in his arms and said something about his back. Lori told the dispatcher about the possible injury, but before she could tell the dispatcher everything, Scott was taking Justin by car to the hospital. Lori told the dispatcher to not send an ambulance because she figured Scott would take Justin to the hospital. When Lori and Cody got to the hospital, Justin was on a gurney suffering from convulsions and nausea with blood all around him. The nurse said that the fall had caused serious injury. Lori said she had, he had been injured at her house and wasn't aware how he had fallen or anything. And the nurse explained that when Justin was brought in by Scott, Scott had said Justin fell out of the car and that he had also hit his head on a metal grate. On the way to the hospital, Scott said he meant to open the car window, but opened the car door instead and Justin fell from the car at 60 miles per hour. Scott didn't think Justin would survive. Now, tell me something. It's 2004. How did that happen? Like, even if it was the crank, you don't mistake that for the door handle. When Barb, Scott's mom, found out about Justin's accident, she went into her insurance office and changed the life insurance policy on Justin from Scott to herself. She had told one of her employees it was because she believed Scott tried to kill Justin for the insurance money because Scott asked her who the beneficiary was. After two weeks in an induced coma, Justin survived. The first thing he asked was, why did my dad do this to me? Justin said that he remembered that Scott dropped the grate on him and then pushed him from the car. The neurosurgeon said that his injuries could have been affected, could have affected his memory. Law enforcement investigated, but since the two injuries occurred in two different jurisdictions, the police were unsure of who would take the lead. Charges weren't filed because of this and with the permission of Justin's mother. Just share jurisdiction. Whatever. Terry Kimball. So Terry was Scott's uncle. And he was Virgil's brother, which is Scott's dad. He came to visit from Alabama along with his dogs to help out with Cody while Justin was hospitalized. Lori didn't like Terry because he drank regularly and liked to walk around the house naked. Terry was also socially awkward. He brought almost all of his possessions and his tractor trailer with his briefcase that had all of his savings in it that he withdrew before his divorce. He slept in Casey's room and began talking to Scott about going into business with him at Faith Farms, another meat business that Scott started in 2003. Back in Alabama, Terry had a wife named Karen Johnson. They had been together for 11 years and had a comfortable routine and she didn't want him moving to Colorado and changing up their lives. Karen remembers a time in Washington that Terry tried to go into business with Scott and it ended up in an argument and then Terry returned home and she expected that to happen again. Lori didn't um, have to worry about Terry for long because one day she came home from work and Scott moved all of the furniture around. He told Lori that uh, Terry had said one of the dogs had thrown up on the couch and moved it outside. When Lori questioned the stain, Scott said that maybe Terry threw up on the couch and blamed the dog but that they didn't have to worry about him anymore because he won state money in Ohio from their lottery, which he is from Alabama and lives in Colorado. So I don't know how he got Ohio lottery, but whatever. He ended up meeting a stripper and moved to Mexico all in one day. Lori thought this was all crazy, especially finding a new girlfriend because she doesn't know anyone who would find him even remotely attractive, even with all the money he had. Lori was very happy he was gone, though. 
Soon after, Karen Johnson filed for divorce. After not hearing from Terry, she was hoping that it would cause Terry to respond to her. Around Labor Day, Karen called Scott and Lori's house, and Scott told her that he had run off to Mexico with the stripper. The divorce papers were sent to the Kimballs' home, where, and then they were returned back to Alabama, and then in 2005, the divorce was finalized. Weeks after Terry had disappeared, um, Terry had some weird activity on his credit card, which was later traced to Scott. He had used Terry's name to buy 21 cows for almost $12,000 from a brush ranch in November. The ranch then complained to the State Department of Agriculture after Scott failed to pay. Terry's bank also found $23,000 written in bad checks that had been withdrawn in the course of four months. The bank did report it to the FBI, but it is unknown if they took any action, which they probably didn't. A year after Terry disappeared, Virgil, Scott's dad, and Terry's brother received an email from a Yahoo.com address. Terry said that he was loving Mexico and didn't want to come back to the States. And there wasn't any more contact with him. So we're at the 40 minute mark. So we're going to talk about like the apprehension, how the FBI ended up being investigated after this. We're going to find out more of his time in prison and the aftermath that I had on the families um, in part two. Just because that also will more than likely be another 30 minute podcast and I don't feel like you guys want to listen to a 70 minute podcast in one sitting um that is all that I have for you today don't forget to like and review and that's about it I definitely think that Carl is a part of it because he seems like an FBI agent who really really knows way too much but I also feel like because Scott has all of these cow farms and he produces organic beef I think that has something to do with Jennifer's body not being found but we will find out more in the next episode bye